Once two gangsters were in a shootout, gunfire all around. One of the gangsters was hit and later died. The two gangsters turned out to be brothers, and the survivor was left with the duty of making funeral arrangements for his mother's son. Well, when he approached the pastor, he told him, he said, Mr. Pastor, my brother really wasn't such a bad kid. Yes, he robbed a few banks and he shot up a few nightclubs and he was the policeman's worst nightmare, but he really wasn't a bad kid. And since mom is going to be at the funeral, I want you to say that my brother was a real saint. Well, the pastor was appalled. He said, how could you be serious? I'm a man of God. There's no way I'm going to get up in front of the people and tell a bald-faced lie. We all know what your brother was. He was far from a saint. He was the worst hoodlum this count town has ever seen. Well, the gangster replied, he said, well, pastor, I understand that you're having a building fund here at the church. And you know, if you'll stand up and say that my brother was a real saint, I'll make a generous contribution to the church's building fund. Well, the pastor thought for a minute and he said, well, I said, tell you what, I'll see what I can do as he took the envelope of cash from the gangster. Well, when the funeral came, the pastor stood up in front of the congregation and in front of the grieving mother, and he said to the congregation, Dearly beloved, we're here today to remember the life of one of the most low-down, despicable, unrighteous, law-breaking scumballs this town has ever seen. But compared to his brother right there, he was a real saint. <laughs> well, this is what the author of First Kings says about the seventh monarch of Israel, King Ahab. In chapter 16, verse 30, we're told, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. In other words, the king of Israel were all scumballs, but compared to the evil king Ahab, they were real saints. He was the worst of the lot. Ahab was awful. But the only person worse than Ahab was the woman he married, Queen Jezebel. And 1 Kings 16 verse 31 tells us, And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbel, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now, as we discussed last week, the sin of Jeroboam was a subtle form of idolatry. It was what the occultist might call or refer to as an entry point, like a Ouija board or some gothic video game or maybe a child's fairy tale book full of spiritism. It appears on the surface to be harmless, innocuous, just some stimulation and fascination. But it can hook an innocent person. And it can become a gateway to further, more occultic stimulation. The golden calves that Jeroboam erected in Dan and Bethel may have intended to be representations of Jehovah God, but that's not how the people of the northern kingdom saw them. They soon became objects of worship. Jehovah himself called them idols. And worse, they were entry points. Gateways to deeper involvement. Jeroboam's cows conditioned Israel to accept Ahab's bull. Literally. For not only was Baal worship a lot of bull... Baal was a representation or represented by a bull, or in some cases, a man standing on a bull. Jeroboam's heifer heresy led to Ahab's blasphemous bull. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that it was this Queen Jezebel that taught Baal worship to Ahab. It turns out that Ahab married the wicked witch. Jezebel was a Phoenician princess, and her goal was to institutionalize the religion of the Phoenicians as the accepted state religion in Israel. 
Here you might say, of Phoenician blinds, Ahab spiritually, and it means curtains for Israel. You might say that. (laughs) Now, in the midst of this hail from Jezebel, which is literally what it was, God sends a little heavenly power to earth. He raises up a prophet through whom he works marvelous miracles. In Israel's darkest hour, God shines one of his brightest lights. Chapter 17, verse 1 begins, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now notice how Elijah just springs on the scene. He appears without introduction, I guess out of the biblical blue. All we're told of his pedigree or his background is that he was a Tishbite. From Gilead, east of the Jordan, Tishbite might refer to his family, perhaps his hometown, we're really not sure. We don't know a lot about him, but he does appear already at work. He is confronting King Ahab. And notice Elijah sees himself standing not before Ahab, but before the Lord. He says in verse 1, the Lord God of Israel before whom I stand. Here is one of the keys to understanding this man. Elijah was a man who feared only God. Ahab possessed a wild, violent temper, as we'll soon see. He could order your execution as easy as a pizza from Domino's. It took nerves of steel for a man like Elijah to enter before the king and confront his wickedness. But Elijah was just such a man. It's been said Elijah saw only God, feared only God, and spoke only the words of God. James 5 verse 17 tells us, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Yes, he was a mighty man of God, but I don't want you to misunderstand. He wasn't superhuman. He was a human being like us. He had a human nature. He had clay feet, just like you and I. He had frailties and weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And as we study Elijah, it's vital to remember that even though he was used by God in spectacular ways... He wasn't a spiritual superhero. He was a man just like us. Like Hal Sutton said last week when he was beating the world's number one golfer, Tiger Woods, in the Tournament Players Championship, he said, Woods puts his britches on one leg at a time just like I do. And so did Elijah. And before we're done tonight, we're going to behold not only his incredible faith and his daring boldness, But we're also going to see his humanness and his weakness. Now, Elijah received power from God the same way that you and I can. He prayed. James 5 verse 17 tells us he prayed earnestly. Elijah was fearless before men because he spent time before God. Elijah was a man of prayer. James tells us he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. You remember in Noah's day, God judged the world by flooding the earth over 40 days. Elijah tells Ahab that God will judge Israel by drying up the earth over 40 months. And note, Elijah tells the king, That there will be no shortcuts out of his dilemma. The road to repentance will pass through Elijah. The prophet tells him that it won't rain again except at my word. James 5 verse 18 adds, And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. Elijah prayed and shut up the heavens. He prayed again and opened the heavens. Elijah was big and bold for God, one of the mightiest men in all of Scripture. Now, verse 2 tells us, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward, and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. 
God gives to Elijah the hit and run sign. He pronounces God's judgment on Ahab and then he splits for safety's sake and he retreats to a hideout that has been supernaturally prepared for Elijah. God had Elijah camp out near a tiny tributary that fed into the Jordan River and the brook supplied him his water. Elijah's meals were catered supernaturally. His food was flown in, quite literally. God tells Elijah in verse 4, I have commanded the ravens to feed you. And note his diet is more than worms. He served bread and meat twice a day. The other night I was watching a nature show on television and I saw this bird pluck a fish out of the water and fly off with this huge fish in the bird's talons. And since God here is providing, I have no doubt that Elijah was eating that kind of fish, maybe char-grilled salmon or, you know, rainbow trout or, you know, he was eating a pretty good diet. God was the one that was providing. I'm sure that Elijah was raving over the menu. Now, when the brook dries up, Elijah moves on. And let me just point out, sometimes... Things dry up in our lives. And when things dry up, it could be the Lord saying, it's time to move on. That's what happened here for Elijah. And he tells Elijah to go to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Now in Luke chapter 4, Jesus tells us why Elijah was sent to this Gentile country of Sidon. God wanted to do a miracle. The 40-month drought had created a severe famine. And God cared about the people who were suffering. In fact, he couldn't stand their suffering any longer. God wanted to bless someone. But not a person in Israel had faith enough to ask for God's help. They were all too proud. No one was humble enough to go to the man of God, Elijah. You see, this is a problem that God often faces. God loves to pour out his provision and lavish his blessings on his people when his people are humble enough to ask. But here's what happens. God looks around and he sees our proud faces. He sees that we're so self-sufficient. And God says, well, since there's nobody here at Calvary Chapel tonight that I can bless, I guess I'll have to move on somewhere else. And so God will go down to the Baptist church or he'll go down to the Methodist church or he'll go wherever he can find someone humble enough to cry out and to ask for his blessing. God is here tonight and he wants to bless you. He wants to heal you. He wants to help you. He wants to reveal himself and his power in you. But you've got to be humble enough to ask. You've got to say, hey, God, I need it right here. I need it. I need you, Lord. You've got to make that confession. That's what happens here. Israel lacked faith, so God sent the prophet to a Gentile city, to a weak widow, but to someone that was willing to acknowledge their need and trust in God's promise. Elijah finds her, an impoverished woman, gathering sticks for her last meal. Her cupboard is almost bare. Just a handful of flour, just a few drops of oil is all that she has left. But Elijah promises that if she'll put another person's needs before her own, a miracle will occur. If she'll bake Elijah a cake with what she has left, God will see to it that her and her son will have more than they need throughout the rest of the famine. And that's exactly what happens. Though she never goes to the store to replenish her bin or her jar, they never empty until the famine is over. Like the day Jesus fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish, a miracle of multiplication takes place in her little flour bin and in her little jar of oil. And God works a wonderful miracle for this woman. There's an important lesson here, though. God's miracles don't happen For selfish people. A never-ending supply exists for those that are willing to share. 
not for those that are bound to hoard. How many of you want to see a miracle tonight? How many of you want a miracle in your life tonight? Raise your hand. Go ahead. Raise your hand. Well, let me tell you what to do. Go home. Get out your flour and your oil or your checkbook or your time calendar or your plan for this coming week and start giving away as much as you can wherever the Lord directs. You try to give it all away. And I tell you what, I'll bet you can't. I'll bet the more you give away, the more you'll receive. I'll bet that God will replace what you give away a hundredfold. Isn't that what Jesus promised us? Luke 6 verse 38 tells us, Give and what? And it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. That's what happened for this woman. If you want a miracle, God gives miracles to those who share, not to those who hoard. For the next few months, Elijah stays with this woman and her son. And that's why she blames her son's death on Elijah's judgment. She says to Elijah in chapter 17, verse 18, Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? She's grieving. She doesn't know what she's saying. But she's upset. Her son has gotten sick and her son is now dead. Now you get the impression that Elijah is a little peeved over this woman's accusation. What does God have to do to prove that his intentions toward her are to show her mercy and not judgment? I think God gets similarly frustrated with us. We're so guilt-ridden, we keep thinking that God wants to judge us. When He keeps saying to us, I want to bless you, just let me bless you. That's my plan for you. When will we believe? Elijah answers this woman's accusations by grabbing her boy's corpse and racing up to his room where he sleeps. And there he lays the boy down. And he does a strange thing. He spreads out his body on top of the corpse. And he prays three times for God to bring the boy's soul back to him. Now, what if you were to walk into the funeral parlor and you were to see the pastor? You're in the viewing room. He's he's the only one in the room. and, And you walk in and you catch him. He's up in the casket laying on the dead corpse, praying earnestly, passionately. What would you think? You would slip out unnoticed. You would call for the funeral director. You would, you would send for the straitjackets. This guy has flipped. This guy is a nut. And that's probably why Elijah took the corpse up to his room so no one you know, would see him, what he was doing. Several weeks ago, I went to the funeral home to pay my last respects to a friend. And when I arrived, there was no one else in the room, just the corpse and me. Don't worry, I didn't spread out on top of him. But I tell you what I did do. I did lay hands on the body, and I prayed that God would revive him. I prayed. I know my friend was already embalmed. But I honestly believe that if God had desired it, that God could have raised up my friend right then and there. And so I asked. I laid hands on him and I asked. And either my faith wasn't strong enough or God didn't will it. But we buried him the next day. But I really believe that if God has called the worlds into existence, which he has, then he can raise a body from the dead. I believe that. Nothing is impossible for God. And here Elijah prays, and the Lord works a miracle, and the little boy lives again. In chapter 18, verse 11, we're told, the word of the Lord came to Elijah 
in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. But en route, Elijah runs into another faithful follower of God, a man by the name of Obadiah. It's ironic here, while Elijah was hiding from King Ahab, Obadiah was working for him. Verse 3 tells us that Obadiah was in charge of Ahab's house. He had a high-level post in his government. And we're also told Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Now, it's interesting to me that both Elijah and Obadiah lived in an apostate time. They both were faced with an ungodly culture. And they both were witnesses for God, but their witness took two different forms. And this is interesting to me. Elijah stood on the outside of the culture. He hid by the brook. Then he lived in exile in Sidon until God uses him to stand up and prophesy against the wickedness of the culture. Whereas Obadiah works from within the culture. He serves God in the king's court. And when Jezebel orders the execution of God's prophets, Obadiah comes to the rescue. In fact, he saves 100 prophets. He hides them. He feeds them. He protects them. He's working from within the system. And I believe that this is a good model for believers today. God calls some of us to a ministry of confrontation. We're involved, as Elijah was, in these supernatural showdowns where we point out the ungodliness of the culture and we call the people to repentance. Whereas, on the other hand, there are other believers who work from behind the scenes. They work from within the system. They are permeating the ungodly culture with godly influence. They are shining their lights in dark places and they're doing what they can for God from within the culture and from within the system. And God uses both the Elijahs and the Obadiahs. He uses both confrontation and infiltration. Now, when Elijah finally approaches Ahab, the king greets him. In verse 17, Ahab asks Elijah, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? To which Elijah answers, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. I'm not the trouble here. You are. And in verse 19, Elijah challenges the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Baal's female counterpart, Azariah, to a showdown. Notice Elijah also realizes that this showdown is with old Jezebel. He notes in verse 19 that the prophets of Baal and Azariah have been supported by the queen. They've been eating at her table. But most significantly, Elijah knows that this is a spiritual showdown between Jehovah of Israel and Baal of the Phoenicians. This is a shootout. This is a sudden death showdown. Now, the nation gathers on Mount Carmel. And Elijah challenges the crowd. In 1 Kings 18, verse 21, he asks them, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. The word translated falter means limp. In other words, Israel had become a wet noodle. No backbone. Their loyalties were based on convenience, not commitment. And it's time to decide. And Elijah is drawing a line in the sand. He's telling him, you've got to choose one side or the other. Who are you going to serve? And notice their response. But the people answered him not a word. They just stood there. Straddling the fence. Dante once wrote, The hottest place in hell is reserved for those who in times of crisis preserve their neutrality. Guys, spiritually, you can't ride the fence forever. Remember, the only things in the middle of the road are yellow streaks and dead skunks. And you don't want to be one of either. There comes a time when each of us must choose whom we will serve. The true God 
the God of Israel, the God of the church, Jesus Christ, or the gods of this world, materialism and hedonism and so forth. Now understand, this is one man and his God versus 850 Baal-worshipping prophets and their God. On the surface of the situation, you'd think that Elijah was outnumbered. But you'd be wrong. Because Elijah's God more than makes up for the deficit. In verses 22 and 23, Elijah sets, 23 and 24, Elijah sets the stage. He says, give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. We'll all conclude that he is God. And they all like the idea. Yeah, sounds good to us. Well, the prophets of Baal go first. They start to cry and pray and chant and go through all of their rituals. And they begin crying from morning until noon, but no fire. They're dancing about, they're chanting, they're wailing. They're going through their liturgies and their sacrifices, but no fire. Nothing gets Baal's attention. Verse 27 tells us, And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. I love how the Living Bible paraphrases it. It says, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder than that. Perhaps he is talking to someone or is out sitting on the toilet. Or maybe he is away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. That expression, he is busy, is a euphemism for sitting on the toilet. Maybe he's asleep. Shout louder and you can wake him up. Isn't it wonderful what the psalmist tells us? That he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber or sleep. You never have to worry about God falling asleep on the job. Now, of course, after Elijah mocks them, the prophets of Baal, they get desperate. We're told they cried aloud and they cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out of them. Bell worshipped. Bell worship involved self-mutilation. That was a, a way that they tried to get the attention of their God. Now this keeps up until the evening sacrifice or about 3 p.m. They've been at it now for nine hours. And Bell has not even flicked his bick. We don't even have a spark. Everything's just standing there cold, dry. Verse 29 puts it, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Perhaps he's been praying to the wrong God. Now it's Elijah's turn at bat. And Elijah repairs the altar of the Lord that suffered from neglect. Then he cuts a trench around it and he pours water over the sacrifice and over the wood. Three times he drenches the sacrifice and fills the trench with water. He wants to make sure that there is no doubt that it's from God when it happens, when the fire falls. God is about to light this barbecue. And Elijah next prays a simple prayer. I love it. Verse 36 and 37. He says, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. That's it. No dancing, no chanting, no slashing. Just a simple request. And we're told in verse 38 and 39, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice 
and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. A couple of months ago, a young lady approached me who was having some physical problems. And I prayed for her. And you prayed for her too, because I asked you to that night. And I told her, now, if God hears your prayer, you'll know that he is God. That Jesus Christ is truly who he said he was, God in the flesh, Lord of all. Well, she came back a couple of weeks ago and she told me that the Lord had touched her and healed her. And she had tears streaming down her eyes. But she's still not there. She's still not ready to embrace Jesus Christ. And so she had another request. And I prayed for her again. And I want you to pray for her too. That the Lord will reveal himself to her one more time and show her that he is God. He did that that day on Mount Carmel. He's done it once in her life. And I believe that he'll do it again. Elijah immediately seizes the prophets of Baal, puts them out of commission. Their execution was the penalty that was prescribed under the law of Moses for a false prophet. And I love the imagery of this sacrifice, of this whole miracle. God can ignite a watered-down, waterlogged, all-washed-up, soggy sacrifice, if we'll just ask him, can he? Well, that pretty much describes how I feel at times. Watered-down, waterlogged, all-washed-up. You ever felt that way? Sometimes I feel like a baseball that's been left in a mud puddle for about three days. It's heavy. It's weighted down. It's waterlogged. And yet, if you'll ask God, He can ignite a fire of enthusiasm and joy and passion and love even in the most waterlogged heart. He can ignite a fire and set that person ablaze with a love for Him. Maybe you feel a little waterlogged tonight. Ask God to light a fire in your heart. Now, after the victory on Mount Carmel, Elijah tells Ahab that this 40-month drought is coming to an end. And he goes up to the top of Carmel and prays. And notice his posture. I think it's interesting. It says, he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees. I think that's the only time in the Bible when anyone prayed while curled up in a ball. Now, Elijah had predicted... Rain after this three and a half year drought. But man, there's not a cloud in the sky. I mean, there's not even a wisp of a cloud in the sky. It's interesting, Mount Carmel, and, and those of you that are going to Israel will see this. When you look back one direction, it looks back over the land of Israel. When you look the other direction, you can see out over the Mediterranean Sea. And so as Elijah is praying, he's telling his servant to go up and look back over the Mediterranean and see if any clouds are forming. That's where the rain would come from. The first six times he goes up there, there's nothing. He comes back, sorry, Elijah, there's nothing. But Elijah continues to pray. Remember, it's the effective, fervent prayer, passionate prayer that avails much. It's on the seventh trip that his servant comes back and tells Elijah, there is a cloud as small as a man's fist. Elijah says, that's it, man. You better hurry home while you've got the chance because you're fixing to see a gully washer, as they'd say down in Texas, a toad strangler. It's coming. And that's exactly what happened, man. The sky grows black and a heavy rain falls on Israel. As we're told in James 5, verse 18, he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. Now, it's been said, God knows the best of men are but men 
at best. And in chapter 19, Elijah proves for us that he too has clay feet. He was a mighty man of God, but remember that he was just a man. As James put it, with a nature like ours. And Elijah is vulnerable to the same discouragements and the same despairs as we are. In fact, we can hardly believe his turnaround here in chapter 19. Verse 2 tells us that when Jezebel hears how Elijah has executed her state clerics, Ahab's darling starts to snarling. And she gets ugly. She says, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. The prophet Elijah has just faced 850 Baal worshipers. And remember, they all had knives. But now he receives a threat from one vile and vicious woman. And it scares him to death. He bolts. He runs. The fugitive. And he splits all the way to Beersheba, which was the southernmost point in Judah. Then he leaves from Beersheba and he goes another day's journey out into the wilderness. And he plops down under a broom tree and he tells God he wants to die. That's what he does. Read his words in verse 4. It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Amazing. In a matter of just hours, Elijah has gone from fearless to fearful. I imagine part of the problem was that Elijah expected his victory at Mount Carmel to solve the problem permanently. He wasn't ready for just how entrenched this resistance to God would be. And on the heels of such an enormous victory, he sinks into this deep and dark despair. According to legend, the devil was having a garage sale. And one man was browsing through some old tools. They were all for sale, except one. It was worn out, it was beat up. And the man asked the devil why that one tool wasn't for sale. And the devil answered him. Hey, I can spare all my other tools, but not this one. This is my most useful implement. When it, when I cannot pry open the heart of man with anything else, I can do it with this. The tool he was referring to was called discouragement. Elijah had become weary and well-doing. He had become tired of the fight. He was hoping that Mount Carmel would be the battle to end all battles, but it wasn't. Guys, at the base of Mount Carmel, when you look one direction, you see the Mediterranean Sea. But when you look the other direction, you see an enormous valley. It's called Armageddon. And there the Bible tells us that one day the nations of the earth will gather to fight against Jesus Christ when he returns. And that will be the battle that will end all battles. In the meantime, life is full of skirmishes. Every day we're involved in the struggle between good and evil. Our struggle against the world and the flesh and the devil is fought every day. We can't let discouragement rob us of our enthusiasm and our faith and our trust in God. It's been said Elijah's outlook had become negative because his uplook had become nil. And that's why God feeds him here and takes him on a trip to Mount Horeb or Sinai. In verse 9, Elijah spends the night in a cave. But in verse 11, we're told, the Lord passed by And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, still, small voice. 
Elijah was used to the Lord revealing himself in spectacular, star-spangled, attention-demanding ways. Fire from heaven is what Elijah was used to seeing. But fire from heaven is the exception rather than the rule. The wind, the rushing mighty wind, the fires, the tongues of fire only occurred in the book of Acts once in Acts chapter 2. The earthquake that jarred the upper room only happened on rare occasion. If we look for God only in the wind and in the earthquake and in the fire, we'll live most of our lives without hearing from Him because that's not the norm in which He speaks. More often than not, God speaks to us as He does Elijah here through the still, small voice of His Spirit. God communicates through inner breathings, through soul whispers. He impresses upon our desires and our instincts. And this is why you have to quiet your heart to hear the Lord. You have to slow down your pace. This is why Jesus so often went up on the mountaintop to spend time alone seeking the Father's will. He was listening for God's still small voice. Understand, the devil has filled our world with constant distractions. We are bombarded with a million voices all day long. Every car has a radio, and 99% of the time it's on. Today we keep a telephone strapped to our belt. Most homes have a television in almost every room. Our computer is hooked up to the internet, which supplies an endless stream of information. We are bombarded by a million opinions all day long. And with so many voices, the one voice that really matters gets drowned out. I'm sure you heard this past week about the tragic accident near the Georgia-Tennessee line. A school bus was hit by a train. It killed three people. Three children on board the bus. By Friday, a preliminary investigation indicated that the train had sounded its whistle. But the driver may not have been able to hear the whistle because of the noise on board the bus. A videotape revealed that the bus driver was subject to several conversations going on and a radio blaring all at the same time. And things were so loud she couldn't hear the whistle. The same scenario puts us in danger when the noises of life become so loud that they drown out the still, small voice of God. We, too, are headed for a serious wreck. If you and I want to walk with God, if we are really serious about knowing God's will for our life, we have to take time. We have to find a Mount Horeb in our lives, where we can slow down and take time and listen to God. I mean, really listen. In verse 13, when Elijah comes out of the cave, the Lord speaks to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah complains that he's been carrying God's torch all by himself. He says in verse 14, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. There is nothing more discouraging than loneliness. Even if it's just the feeling of being alone, just the perception of it, it can get to you. And that's why God tells Elijah that he's wrong about being Israel's only faithful prophet. In verse 18, the Lord tells him that there's 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Sometimes we get discouraged. And we assume that we must be the only Christian in our high school. We're the only believer at work. I'm the only person that loves God in that office or in that neighborhood, or on that baseball team. But perhaps not. 
Ask God to provide you some fellowship. Ask God to open your eyes to the 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal. They're there. You've just become so discouraged that you can't see them. Ask God for some fellowship and he'll provide it. Once a father handed his son a bundle of sticks, told him to break the bundle. So the boy slammed it on the ground, but it wouldn't break. He took it and threw it up against the trunk of a tree, but it wouldn't break. He eventually took it and rammed it down over his knee, but it wouldn't break. The father came up and he untied the bundle and he started breaking the sticks one by one. This is how you break the bundle. And this is how Satan knows he breaks us. This is his strategy. He wants to get you away from the bundle. He wants to get you out on your own, alone, by yourself. There he can break you. But when we are together, tied together in the bonds of Christ, in the same bundle, we are stronger together than we would be apart. That's why we need each other. We need fellowship. We need to seek it. The Lord gives Elijah new instructions. He's to anoint a new king in Syria, a new king in Israel, and then he's introduced to Elisha. Notice God's cure for Elijah's loneliness is not for someone to mentor him, but for him to mentor someone else. The teacher always is blessed more than the student he disciples or he mentors. At the end of chapter 19, Elijah throws his mantle or his cloak on Elisha. It was a call to discipleship. It was an offer of apprenticeship, an invitation for Elisha to become a follower of Elijah. Verse 19 tells us that there were 12 oxen in Elisha's field at one time. And this implies that Elisha was a pretty successful businessman. But just because you're successful in the workplace doesn't mean that that success will transfer over into ministry. And that's why Elisha has to be enrolled as a servant. And he leaves behind a prosperous business, a prosperous farm to follow Elisha, Elijah. And I love really how he accepts his call to ministry. Notice what he does. Elisha slaughters his oxen. And then he cooks them over a fire that he starts with his wooden yokes. And then he takes the meat and he feeds it to the people. In other words, he's burning all his bridges, isn't he? He's just liquidated his assets. He's given them away. Elijah has no intention of keeping his options open. He is committing himself to God, lock, stock, and barrel. Too many folks set out to serve the Lord with reservations. They'll step out as long as they can step back if it doesn't work out. But if you're sure of God's calling, why not go for it? Faith is willing to go beyond the point of no return. When it's sure of God's call. The rest of the book summarizes the wars between Israel and her northern neighbor, Syria. And just how God works, even despite Ahab's idolatry. Chapter 20 begins with Ahab surrounded. And Bidhadad, king of Syria, demanding Ahab's silver, his gold, and his loveliest wives... And at first, this wimpy man Ahab tells Ben-Hadad that he can just have what he wants. But then Ahab's advisors tell him that he needs to draw the line. When he does, Ben-Hadad is ready to fight, and Ahab musters a little courage. He says in verse 11, Tell Ben-Hadad, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. I like that. In other words, we still got to play the game, baby. We still got to fight the battle. Let's see who wins in the end. The team that's supposed to win doesn't always succeed. And sure enough, underdog Israel wins an incredible victory. Now, in the wake of this defeat, the Syrians start figuring what went wrong. And their strategists go to work and they conclude that the Lord God of Israel must be the Lord of the mountains. But he doesn't have jurisdiction over the flatlands. 
And so in their retaliatory attack that they're going to launch next spring, they conclude that they're going to march through the plain this time and they're going to stay out of the mountains and avoid this God that defeated them the first time. Of course, you know the outcome. God is the Lord over all the earth, over all the universe. And again, he comes to Israel's defense and Israel wins a great victory. Now you think we moderns would not fall for such a silly argument. You know, we make the very same mistake. Here's what we assume. God is Lord over Sunday. So on Sunday, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to try to do right and I'm going to try to live for the Lord on Sunday. But God doesn't go in the valley of midweek. You know, that's not really his jurisdiction. I'm going to get out there in the business world, and and that's where I'm kind of on my own out there, in the valley. On the Sunday mountains, I'll serve the Lord. That's where God belongs. But God is not really a part of the valley, the flatlands out there in the middle of the week. (laughs) Well, God is not only Lord over all the earth. He's Lord over all the week. He's just as interested in what you do on Monday as he is on Sunday. On Friday night, as he is on Sunday morning, just as interested. Syria finds that out when she attacks, and the Israelis kill a 100,000 Syrian troops. Now, Syria has been a thorn in Israel's side for years, and it was God's will that Ahab finish off the enemy. Instead, he cuts a deal. He signs a peace treaty with Damascus, and he lets Ben-Hadid walk away scot-free, and it displeases the Lord And in verses 35 through 43, a prophet is called to expose the king's error. In a very clever way, he pronounces God's judgment on King Ahab. I'll let you read it later. Chapter 21 proves that a greedy man never has enough. Ahab is sovereign over a kingdom, but he really wants that vineyard next door. He wants to plant some vegetables for some tomatoes this year. Can you believe it? And he tries to buy the vineyard from Naboth, but it's his inheritance. It's the family business. It's what he's going to pass down to his descendants. It's what's going to feed his heirs. And so Naboth says, no deal. Ahab, though, goes home and he pouts. That's when Jezebel takes over. She frames Naboth. She has him murdered. And then Ahab goes next door and plants his little tomato plants and has his little vegetable garden and Gets his little way. It's an abuse of power. It is a White House scandal. Vegetable gate. (laughs) But it's not the Samaritan post that breaks the story. God gives the scoop to Elijah. He tells the prophet to meet Ahab in Naboth's vineyard and pronounce his judgment. And it's a grisly prophecy to say the least. Ahab's house will be cut off. The dogs will lick his blood in the exact spot where they licked up the blood of Naboth. Jezebel, too, will die a violent death by the wall at Jezreel. And yet, if you've ever doubted God's mercy, I want you to check out verse 29. Verses 25 and 26 are a short summary of the hideous sins of Ahab. But notice, when Ahab humbles himself... The Lord shows mercy on even the likes of an Ahab. Isn't that incredible? And guys, if the Lord shows mercy on Ahab, the Lord will show mercy on anyone sitting here tonight. In chapter 22, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, pays a visit to Samaria. And Ahab poses an alliance. Why don't we join forces, Jehoshaphat, and fight against the Syrians? Jehoshaphat likes the idea, but he's a godly king and he wants to check it out with God before he acts. I hope that you always consult the Lord before you make a move. Ahab says no problem, and so he calls in the 400 false prophets. Jehoshaphat realizes that these 400 prophets are nothing but stooges. They're going to say whatever Ahab wants them to say. And so Jehoshaphat asks if there's a true prophet anywhere in Israel. And Ahab answers him in verse 8. He says, there is still one man 
Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. I'm telling you, this guy's a spoiled brat. Doesn't say what I want him to say. I hate that guy. Now, Ahab's 400 yes men have made a big deal of their answer. Zedekiah had come prancing in with these iron horns, telling the king to go out and gore the Syrians, you know, and he put on this big show. And the other prophets had all chimed in with the same message. That's when Micaiah showed up. And Ahab tells him what's already been said, and then he suggests, Hey, Mick, why are you always rocking the boat? What about just once? What about you just tow the party line just once? And you got to love what Micaiah tells the king in verse 14. He says, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. He's a straight shooter. Hey, there are a lot of churches, there are a lot of pastors today that will tell you what you want to hear. But the true man of God will speak only what the Lord tells him to speak. To Ahab's surprise, Micaiah agrees with the advice he's already received from Zechariah, from the other stooges. And Ahab is suspicious. Now he says, wait a minute, you've never agreed with these guys before. Why are you agreeing with them this time? Something's up. And Micaiah tells him what the Lord has shown him. He sees Israel scattered. She has lost her leader. The people will be like sheep without a shepherd. And implied in all that is that Ahab will die in battle. And then the prophet Micaiah reveals what he has seen in the spirit realm. And it is quite a vision that he's seen. Verse 19. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne... And all the host of heaven standing by, all the angels, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, In what way? And so he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. What a vision. Now we know that God uses good to accomplish his purposes. We know that from time to time, God employs faithful angels to do his bidding. But I believe that here he uses a demon, a lying spirit, to go out and fill the mouths of these prophets in order to arrange Ahab's demise on the battlefield. And I think it's fascinating that God doesn't just use good for his purposes, but he can also take evil and use evil. Now, the fact that God uses evil doesn't make evil good. Evil is evil. But God is sovereign over all things, even the evil in the world. And he can take it and he can use it for good and accomplish his purposes with it. Now, this Ahab, he is so wicked. He knows the Syrians have targeted the Israelis. They they don't really want to mess with Jehoshaphat. In Judah, They just want to find Ahab and kill him. And so that's why he tells Jehoshaphat to wear his royal robes into the battle. Ahab, in turn, disguises himself. He's setting Jehoshaphat up, his, his so-called buddy up, to be the target of their attack. It's Ahab. He's, a wonder, he's really a nice guy. But you can't fool God. And we're told in verse 34, now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. 
He says at random, but God knew where that arrow was going. God took caught that random arrow the moment it left the bow, and he guided it all the way to that slight hole between the two metal plates on Ahab's vest. Direct hit. And we're told that Ahab bled to death in his chariot. And guess what happened to the blood that pooled up in the bottom of his chariot? Well, after the battle, someone was washing out the chariot when the dogs came to lick up the blood. And it all came down just as Elijah had predicted it would back in chapter 21. Ahab's son, Ahaziah, takes over for his father in Israel. And Jehoshaphat gets home barely unscathed. But Jehoshaphat learns an important lesson. In verse 49, when Ahaziah suggests another joint venture with Judah, this time King Jehoshaphat says, No way, Jose. Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. Not going that route again. Ahab's double cross, his narrow escape from the battlefield, taught Jehoshaphat the dangers of being unequally yoked with an unbeliever, even when that unbeliever is a brother. Enter a joint venture with a person who serves a different God, who has different values, and you will get Burned. Whether that joint venture is a battle allegiance, a business partnership, a marriage relationship. Verse 44 tells us that Jehoshaphat made peace with his nor- northern neighbor Israel, but he avoided any future entanglements. And that's a good policy for us. Make peace, but don't sign any agreements. <laughs> And that gets us to the end of 1 Kings. Father, thank you for speaking to our hearts tonight. Thank you for the many lessons, Lord, that you've brought to our attention. Help us to not only be hearers of the word, but doers also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.